The reading is from Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 1. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. <clears throat> Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut, cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard, and heard the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself. He left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Here ends the lesson. If you were here uh, a couple of weeks ago, you would have heard my colleague Dawn in her sermon on the wise and foolish bridesmaids making reference to the song by Curtis Mayfield, people get ready. And Dawn asked the question of whether we are ready for the long fight for justice. In the context of the parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids, the question was asked of whether our oil was sufficient to keep the light of hope and justice burning through the long night of darkness ahead. This song, People Get Ready, was a kind of unofficial anthem of the civil rights struggle in the 1960s. And Martin Luther King Jr. often used this song as part of uh, his marches to get people marching. And Matthew, you brought this with you today. 
perhaps once the service is over, could we just play it for people if they can't place it? Um, also, not doing it in the middle of the service means we avoid getting struck out by YouTube for playing copyright material on something that I then try and upload. It's a song that gets people marching. And today is Palm Sunday. And today, the gospel moves us from waiting to marching. Today is the day for marching on Jerusalem, for entering the temple, for turning the tables on those who hold power over others to exploit and exclude. And so today I want us to begin by remembering the story of Martin Luther King Jr.'s March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Abby, could you just pop up for a moment that photograph of this march? Uh, this church has, has an association, as many of you will know, with Martin Luther King Jr. He preached here in October 1961. Well, just uh, three years after, two years after that, sorry, uh, on August the 28th, 1963, uh, he was part of organizing this march on Washington, D.C., about a quarter of a million people advocating for the civil and economic rights of African-Americans. Martin Luther King Jr. here is about to deliver his historic I Have a Dream speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial. And after centuries of oppression, and despite various attempts at widening representation, America in the 1960s was still a deeply divided society. Okay, Abby, we can uh, lose the picture now, so just stop sharing that. Thank you. Did you know that at the time of that march, southern states were passing constitutions and laws that disenfranchised most black people and many poor white people, excluding them from the political system? They were kept out because of who they were. They were black. They were poor. Interracial marriage in 1963 was prohibited in 21 states. And the Jim Crow laws enforced continued segregation in public spaces, with many black people the victim of regular violence. We've already had reference to one song of this era. Well, if you know another song of this era, Billie Holiday's song, Strange Fruit. Her well-known performances of this song describe the lynching of black men hung from trees. And it is a truly heartbreaking evocation of that time in American history. And it was against all this backdrop of oppression that a group of people who had all become associated with the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee decided to use the techniques of community organizing that they had been learning to organize what became one of the largest political rallies for human rights in United States history. And interestingly, the work of the Highlander Folk School can be directly traced to the current work of the community organizing movement here in London, London citizens, that many of us here in Bloomsbury have become involved with. Get people marching, get people turning out, get people on the streets, 
because that way you begin to open the door to change. And so A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin and others, including Martin Luther King Jr., gathered their alliance of churches and other organisations to march under this banner of jobs and freedom as a decisive act of non-violent direct action on the streets. They were careful to position the march as a peaceful demonstration and not as an act of revolution or revolt. And it is credited with propelling the US government into action, such that within a couple of years, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act were passed. Sometimes marching for freedom is the only way to end the long years of waiting. And I'm sure you get where I'm going with this. When I invite you now to step back, not 60 years, but two millennia, to Jesus' march on Jerusalem. The situation of first century Palestine was also a world of exclusion and violence and oppression. The Romans were oppressing the Jews as they oppressed pretty much all the nations that they conquered. And the Jewish population were harboring their hopes of nationalism and freedom with their religiously inspired hopes for a Messiah who would usher in a new golden age of self-determination. So the Romans were oppressing the Jews who had their dreams of nationalism. But the Jews, or at least their religious and political elite, were also themselves at this time acting exclusion on others. The temple, the dwelling place of God on earth, the place where humans could go to encounter the presence of the divine, it was off limits. It was off limits to all women, to all foreigners, and to a whole host of others who were marked out as unclean because of some aspect of their identity or behaviour. And it was in this context of oppression and exclusion that Jesus and his disciples march on Jerusalem. And in contrast to the hundreds of thousands who marched on Washington in 1963, the march on Jerusalem was enacted by just a handful of people, but we shouldn't diminish it for this. The symbolic significance of that moment is spelled out in Matthew's gospel for us all to see. Jesus and the disciples draw near to Jerusalem, pausing just a short walk away on the Mount of Olives on the other side of the valley. And even today, this is where you go to get the best views of the city. And many of us here have, have done that on our trips from this, uh, this church to visit the Holy Land. It was this place that Jesus chose as his staging area for what would become the final enactment of his march on the city. So what's going on with this march on Jerusalem? In ancient times, particularly in Roman and Greek cultures, a returning king or a successful warrior would be welcomed into their home city with what was known as a triumph, a triumphal entry into the city where everyone turned out to welcome the conquering hero. You can imagine, can't you, the flags, 
the waving, the cheering, probably bunting and street parties. Well, maybe not the last two, but you get what I mean. And so Jesus marches to Jerusalem in what becomes known as his triumphal entry, but which is, in fact, a parody of what people had come to expect from a triumph. In place of a war horse, he rides an ass. In place of a band of conquering heroes, he's accompanied by a motley crew of fishermen and nobodies. In place of a sword, he holds aloft empty hands. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is not a Roman triumph. It's something else entirely. And because we don't know our Hebrew Bible as well as perhaps we should, we need Matthew to spell it out for us. Jesus may be mimicking a Roman imperial triumph, but he's doing it to evoke some very specific parts of the Jewish prophetic tradition. So Matthew gives us this quote from the prophet Zechariah. I'm sure you all know Zechariah. Quoting the section, celebrating God's defeat of Israel's enemies and the establishment of God's reign on the earth. Jesus may be subverting the Roman ideal of a military triumph, but he's still, it seems, entering as a reigning king. He is the king of heaven on his way to victory. And so the crowds greet him appropriately as a king, spreading their cloaks on the road and cutting branches from the trees to prepare his way. And as they do so, Matthew has them shouting words of praise drawn from Psalm 118. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. The crowds, in fact the whole city, respond to Jesus' arrival, some with joy and others with confusion or consternation. The fact that the people are hailing him as the son of David tells us what they think is going on here. Son of David, surely is David's, King David's rightful heir, coming to re-establish his earthly kingdom by overthrowing the Romans and restoring Israel's independence and international standing. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is a deeply, unmistakably political act He's come to be acknowledged as king, and so he is hailed as the son of David, the one long expected, the one who is coming to free Jerusalem and the people of Israel from foreign domination. Yet things are not quite what they seem. Remember, there's no sword, there's no war horse, there's no band of warriors. This king is going to triumph not through violent revolt, but by non-violently turning the tables, raising up the downtrodden and the broken, drawing into God's presence those who have been otherwise excluded. There's a revolution coming here, absolutely, but it is not the violent one the crowds think they are cheering. And so Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is celebrated by those who are not in power and correspondingly feared by those who are. The ruling elite of Israel, the ruling overlords of the Romans, 
they get the wind that something is coming. There's a change coming. People get ready. The powerful are going to have to give up some of their privilege if the poor are going to be raised up. And the thing the disciples are about to discover is something that we know well, which is that the powerful don't like to see the empowerment of the disempowered. The powerful never give up their power without a fight. And so Jesus enters Jerusalem and goes straight to the temple, the building that defines the city. It's the religious and political centre. These days, Western society tends to espouse a mantra of the separation of religion and politics. Broadly, I think that's a good thing. I'm against established religion. Although I suspect in the coming weeks when we do our bunting and our street parties on a particular weekend coming up sometime in a few weeks' time when the roadworks will be over, I suspect at that point, as we see our new monarch crowned by the Archbishop in the Abbey, we might all be rediscovering something of a deep something about established religion. After all, we've got our Anglican bishops in the House of Lords set aside these anomalies for a moment i think on the whole most people are of the opinion that there is some dividing line between the church and the state the church might still have some influence but it doesn't get to write the laws of the land and a good thing too i reckon as an aside did you see the story from a few months ago where an mp suggested that bishops and i quote here bishops should not be using their pulpits to preach from what else are you supposed to do with one of these things it turns out that jonathan gullis mp was upset that some senior members of the clergy had published a letter critical of the government's policy of moving and processing asylum seekers offshore to Rwanda. And I noticed on the news today, looking at BBC News this morning, Suella Braverman has doubled down on this policy and is insisting that Rwanda is the perfect place to send people who are seeking asylum in our country. I do very much think there is a role for people of faith to have a voice in national life. I am glad for the opportunity that this church gives me on occasions to do just that. The calling for the people of God to speak truth to power is an important prophetic duty. It's one the prophets of the Hebrew Bible took seriously. I just think we shouldn't have an established church and rely on that to do it for us. We're Baptists, after all. But at the time of Jesus, the politics and power dynamics of the Roman occupation and the ruling elite of Israel meant that the role of religion in Jewish society had become one of predominantly keeping the people subservient first century religion in, is, in Israel, in Jerusalem, was not about challenging the powers of oppression. It was doing deals behind closed doors to keep things ticking along smoothly. And at the heart of this project was the Great Temple, rebuilt only a few decades previously by Herod the Great as a symbol of the power of religion to dominate and control the population. 
Herod had been an ally of Rome and a puppet king of Israel, and he'd constructed his temple and all of its associated hierarchies to protect this power. And so, Jesus, in his freedom march to Jerusalem, entered the gates of the city and went straight to the heart of this nexus of religious and political power. He went to the temple. And this is all political and it's all about power. And the reference Matthew gives us to the prophet Zechariah. Have you read your Zechariah recently? This tells us that Jesus is not going to allow Rome to determine what counts or does not count for politics. No first century equivalent of an angry MP is going to tell Jesus that messiahs should stick to theology. Politics and faith for Jesus are intertwined and they're all about power. But the power that Jesus exercises is a power which is life-giving, drawing as it does on the very source of life itself. And so Jesus enters the temple, driving out those who were selling and buying, overturning the tables and seats of those profaning the temple by making it just another place of commerce. Symbolically and in reality, Jesus assumes the mantle of the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah by condemning those who are buying and selling in the temple telling them that the temple should be a house of prayer. The politics that Jesus has come to proclaim, you see, is a politics grounded in prayer and in worship. In a recognition that above all earthly power, above all human rulers, there is a God whose desire is for people to be released from captivity and freed from oppression and free to worship in spirit and in truth. This is the politics of Jesus, and so Jesus proclaims that the temple is to be a house of prayer, not just for the righteous, not just for the men, but for the ritually unclean, for the Gentiles, for all people. The blind, the lame, the children, all those who would normally be excluded are specifically welcomed here by Jesus into the presence of God. And they find healing through acceptance and belonging as they enter the courts of God's house. The politics of Jesus is a politics of inclusion, not exclusion. It's a politics that originates in God's love for all people without distinction. Jesus is here enacting the prophecy of Isaiah written initially to those whose task it was to rebuild the temple after the Babylonian exile. Listen to what Isaiah said to them and hear it echoing in Jesus's words and actions in the temple. This is a quote from Isaiah. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Thus says the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. This is why we need to know our Hebrew Bible if we're to understand what Jesus is doing. Jesus acts as the prophets have always acted, making God's word present through action. And there's no mandate here for violence. The truth known and lived by Martin Luther King Jr. and by those who organized the Freedom March on Washington is also here in Jesus's March on Jerusalem. True 
godly politics must be non-violent politics. We have a candle on a peace flag. It's also an LGBTQ flag, I know, but it has the word peace written on it, and that's for a very good reason. Jesus' cleansing of the temple was the overturning not only of the tables of the money changers, but of the established order of exclusion. Jesus invited into God's presence those who had otherwise been kept away. And that's why we have an LGBTQ flag at the front, as well as a peace flag. All are welcome, none are excluded. There's a key theological principle that lies behind what Jesus was doing in the temple. He was enacting the year of Jubilee, the resetting and restoring of human relationships between people and people and between people and God. Not only are the blind and the lame welcomed into Jesus' cleansed temple, but so are the poor. Those who sold doves in the temple precincts did so because the book of Leviticus included a provision for the poor. It allowed those who could not afford to buy a sheep to substitute doves or pigeons for their sacrifice. But that provision had, it seems, become just another way of exploiting the poor. These supposedly free birds were now being sold in the temple precincts at extortionate prices. Jesus was not only cleansing the temple, he was starting a revolutionary celebration. As the people, even the children who had been excluded from the temple, were suddenly able to enter and sing the words of the psalmist, Hosanna to the son of David. And this is not simply worship, these are political words. As we've seen, the son of David was within the Jewish tradition, the heir to the throne of David, and consequently the one who would restore David's throne and kingdom. But did you know, if you look through Matthew's gospel, you find that it is only ever those talking about Jesus who call him the son of David. Whenever Jesus refers to himself and his own ministry, he calls himself the son of man. It's a very clear distinction in the way Matthew's gospel is written. And I think the point is clear. The kingdom that Jesus has come to establish is not David's kingdom. It's not some nationalistic or parochial kingdom with borders that exclude. The people of God is not a closed set with borders to be patrolled and controlled as people are sent to another country to be processed. It's not a holy elite from whose company the unclean must be repelled. Jesus is having none of that, and frankly, nor should our politics have any of it either. The kingdom that Jesus proclaims is a kingdom for all humankind, for all those who are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Whatever their nationality, gender, sexuality, economic status, ethnicity, skin colour, whatever else you may write onto humanity that excludes people. Jesus' kingdom is marked by a politics of inclusion and welcome and peace. And the sanctuary should be the place where that is most real. And this is why bishops must object to inhuman border policies. And it's why all Christians are called to take their stand against exclusion. And it's why we must resist any power that destroys. And it's why we must renew our commitment to nonviolence and action and inclusion. 
This is the kingdom of heaven that Jesus marches to Israel to establish. And it's not fully known yet on the earth, but we do catch glimpses of it. It came nearer, though that day when a quarter of a million people marched on Washington in 1963. And dare I say it drew nearer just a little bit this week when some of us from Bloomsbury went to stand outside a healthcare trust in Marlebone with others from London citizens, challenging them to pay a living wage to their staff. And then we got seen off by the security guard because they don't want to talk to us. But we'll be back, non-violently, saying you have to do better because we have a vision that the world needs to be better. We are called to the Freedom March in the name of Christ. And my question for us this morning is, can you hear the call? Will you join the march? Let us pray. Jesus looked at the city and wept and said, if only you had known the way that leads to peace. As we remember that Jesus, the Messiah, entered Jerusalem as the King of Peace, we pray for the peace of the city, the country, and the region. We pray for the peace of our capital cities, for London, Edinburgh, Cairdydd and Belfast. We ask, dear Lord, that the Christian hope and peace will rise in the seats of government, that our nation will work together for the good of the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. Bring our nations peace and hope. We remember those nations at war or in conflict, Ukraine, Russia, Myanmar, Mexico, Yemen, Somalia, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Syria, Mali, Burkina Faso, Iraq, Afghanistan, Nigeria, Niger, Colombia, South Sudan, Cameroon, Mozambique, Pakistan. We pray for the rise of peaceful governments and the end to tyranny. Bring the nations peace and hope. On the day we call to mind the humility of Jesus, we pray for the church and its leaders, both global, national, 
We call them to local service. We pray for our ministers, for those who work with us. We pray for Simon, for Dawn, for Abby, for Stephen, and for the deacons. We ask that you bring Bloomsbury peace and hope. We remember the wider Baptist family, those serving in the Baptist World Alliance, BMS, Didcot, the London Baptist Association. We ask that together as we recall Jesus' counterintuitive statement of rule and authority, that he comes not to judge, but as king of peace and hope, that the church will challenge stereotypes and face the world with a new inclusive ministry. Bring the church peace and hope. We pray our savior for peace and hope that the people of Jerusalem saw in you as individuals and they shouted come and save us we ask you to save us as individuals in our seasons of grief we pray In our seasons of sickness, we pray for those around us. In our season of despair and anxiety, in our seasons of want and need, We ask that you bring each of us peace and hope through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And so, as Zachariah goes on to say, And he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. And also, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today, I declare that I will restore to you double. May we go out of this place as prisoners of hope. To speak truth and peace wherever we go. Amen.